Well, let's do this. Let's stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. Today's message is going to be called the Siren of the Soul, or you could call it the Herald of the Heart. I just like siren because it's more annoying, right? When you hear a siren, a herald almost seems a lot more pleasant. The siren of the soul. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12 through 14 is our text today. Verse 12, Paul says this, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understood, and I hope you will understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason for boasting, and you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me over this text? I'm thankful for the book of 2 Corinthians, thankful for Austin's uh, message last week, thankful that we get to study, thankful that the gospel is showed most clearly in weakness, we find your strength. That when we're weak, that's an opportunity. Thank you for the attacks that the Corinthian church and these false teachers made on Paul, that he would emphasize something different. Not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. Not man's way, but God's way. God, today let us capture what Paul has to say about the conscience, about the, the good, clear, godly, and I would say biblically informed conscience that he has towards these Corinthians. Let this be the conscience that God's people have. May the siren of the soul be something that we come to a greater understanding today. May it convict those of us who are walking in sin. May it convict those of us who are not even in Christ. May it show forth even the reason why we maybe haven't followed the Lord in believers' baptism. God, the siren of the soul. May today we learn something about the conscience It has been ignored. It has been put on the shelf. It is little understood by God's people. But the Word of God speaks about it. So let us come to an understanding. Let us us make the application with the text. And God, may we today be able to say of our own selves, we have a clean conscience before an unbelieving world and before the followers around us, our conscience is not condemning us. Thank you for the Son. Thank you for the good news of the gospel that those in Christ are new creations and have been called to not serve an evil conscience, but now a living God. Help us in this. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Okay, so today we're going to have a very long introduction and a very short exposition, right? Long introduction. So, um, when I actually get into the text itself, that won't be as much of the message as it will be me talking about the conscience. I think it's helpful for you to understand the conscience, to understand the text of what's before us. And I would actually tell you this, I'm not confident that God's people understand what the conscience is. Not confident. Um, and I actually would warn and say most of us, when we think of conscience, we've had so much psychobabble convolute what the conscience is that we don't really understand what the conscience is. We buy into secular ideas such as the unconscious, right? Just so you understand and you know today, if there's problems in your life, if there's anxiety, there's worry, there's fear, a secular psychotherapeutic man-made system of, of how God has made us would say, well, there's things locked in your uh, unconscious, your subconscious that are causing you to act the way that you are. And I would go, that's not true. Let God be true and men liars, right? God has designed us in a certain way. And if there's something that's affecting our life today, it's because there's something consciously going on. Now, we may decide to take something and try to push it down where we don't think about it anymore, but the conscience will keep sounding the siren. Now, we'll explain that more here in a little bit, but let me give you an illustration of, I think, a good illustration of what a, the siren of the soul, what the conscience kind of does. How many of you have ever gotten in your car, put the key in, gone, and, and I would say probably a car that probably have to be probably maybe in the last 10 years, 
maybe 20 years if you have a car in that range. If you turn on the car, but you don't buckle the seatbelt, and you start driving, what's going to start happening? Right. A siren. A siren goes off. Why? Now, why is that siren there? Is that siren there to, to lead you and guide you or guard you? It's there to guard you. See, a lot of people think that the conscience is really about guiding you. It's really about guarding you. Now, here's why I want to make an illustration. Your car, is a, that, that beep that goes off, it's a siren to warn you and go, wait a minute, what are you doing? You need to buckle that seatbelt in so it keeps going off. The car manufacturers have put it there. It's a siren that's trying to tell you something. Now, what we like to do is a couple things. One is we'll try to ignore it for just a little bit. Have you ever done that? Try to ignore it just a little bit. Maybe you're in the grocery store parking lot and you're just making a circle or you've just unbuckled, but you're just going to go for a little bit, and, but it just will not shut up. It just will not leave you alone, right? That's kind of what a conscience is supposed to do is to keep pricking you if you're not obeying it, if you're not heeding its warning call. Now, there's some people, I actually have a family member that refuses to buckle, does not like to buckle. And they, will, they have done this for so long that when you sit in the car with them, they don't even know that the siren's going off, right? They have just done this for so long, they have turned it off. That's what a lot of people have done with their conscience. Did you know you can ignore your conscience enough that it is kind of like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Just a lot of wah, 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 wah. And then, of course, until someone else jumps in the car and they're looking at you like you have lost your mind. By the way, that's why God's people need God's people. Because God's people sometimes don't listen to the siren in the car. And it's not until someone else, another brother or sister, gets in the car and starts bearing the burden with them and says, hey, wait a minute, wait. I hear a siren going off. Brother, sister, why are you not listening to the siren? Do you know that you're supposed to put the seatbelt on? And all of a sudden you feel embarrassed and, you, and then you kind of buckle it or you start to make an excuse for not buckling and then they rebuttal you and kind of help you understand like, no, this is actually something for your good. So the conscience is really a siren for the soul or... You could call it a herald for the heart. It is something inward that God has given us so that it would help us actually um, obey the Lord, the conscience. So when you look at our text today in verse 12, Paul says this, Our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience. Now, Paul talks about boasting a lot, right? And, and, And actually, if we're to boast in anything, it's the Lord Jesus. And I want you to understand He is boasting about his conscience, but not for his own self-glory. He's boasting about his conscience because in the end, his conscience has been informed by the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, I have a clear conscience towards you. And I want to boast about this. I want to boast that it's with holiness and godly sincerity. That word godly sincerity has this word of without wax back in their day. If you were buying a piece of pottery, often if it had a crack in it, they would put a piece of wax in it to try to cover that up. And when you would buy a piece of pottery, what you would do in ancient times is you would hold that pottery up to the light to see, was there any wax in it, right? And so, was it a sincere pot? Sincere, was it sincere? Was it without wax? He says, he says, I have a clear conscience in verse 12. No wax in here, right? It's, it's with holiness. I'm clear in what I've, how I've done ministry to you and what I've said to you and how I've operated around you and how I've visited you, how I have written a letter of sorrow, how I've written a letter in 1 Corinthians of rebuke. I am clear in my conscience towards you. This is the kind of conscience God wants us to have. This is what he's boasting about, not himself, but the conscience that he has as a result of the Lord Jesus. So the conscience, it's mentioned 30 times in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's often connected to the heart. You see that quite a bit. It's one of the inner workings on the inside, of the inner man of the heart of the soul. Now, ultimately, the conscience is subject to the God, but I will tell you this, the conscience is not perfect. Have you ever heard, let your conscience be your guide, right? I would say that's not exactly a very good statement to, to actually go, because You'll discover here in a little bit, sometimes our consciences are weak. Sometimes our consciences can be ignored. So you don't always let your conscience guide you. Your conscience is there to warn you. And your conscience warns us better. The better we know the word of God and the law of God, that conscience becomes more biblically informed. 
but it's not perfect. It's not perfect. Now, the word, when you see the word conscience, it comes from a compound word. And that compound word has the idea of knowing with the soul or the soul reflecting on itself. Knowing with the soul, the soul reflecting on itself. So the conscience is this siren saying, what's going on in the heart? Let me reflect it back to you. Now, the Bible says that our hearts are deceived and desperately wicked in Jeremiah 17, 9. That only the Lord really knows the heart, Jeremiah 17, 10. However, God has put something in our soul, in our hearts, called the conscience that actually helps us to discern, are we walking with the Lord or not? Are we obeying Him or not? Now, as I told you earlier, it's a siren, not a guide. So being a siren means it warns you and alarms you when you've walked out of what you believe, what what you understand to be truth, but it is, not the, it is not perfect. Only God is perfect. It does not mean we always perfectly um, look at our, at our life. It means that we should be suspicious oftentimes. I'm suspicious of my own life. I'm suspicious of how righteous I am. That's why I'm to be looking at the log in my own eyes. I try to take the speck out of my brother's. But it does actually, but it, you can, you can see it even in the text we can come to different places and seasons in life and to life situations and go, as far as I understand, my conscience is not condemning me. It is not accusing me here. What I've done to you has been with sincerity and with holiness. And that's the way life is actually supposed to be done. Now, what's interesting is Paul is living a sincere life before them in his ministry to them. And they're throwing unfair accusations um, next week, while we're on our mission trip, uh, Austin will be talking about one of those accusations. Very flimsy. But Paul says, no, I've got, my conscience is completely clear with you guys. A clear conscience, a good conscience. That's the kind of conscience that God wants us to have. That's the kind that he has towards them. Although they don't believe it, they doubt it. They are living a lot by their feelings. They're living a lot by what others have said about Paul. So the conscience, it's this reflection about what, knowing it's this, the soul reflecting on itself. Um, now, let me just kind of make a transition here as I'm kind of looking at my notes. When we think about the conscience, here's what we got to do. There's all sorts of worldly philosophy about it. And to be honest with you, most of it comes from a guy named Sigmund Freud. And it's basically a bunch of garbage. All right? It's a bunch of garbage. Let the word of God inform what our conscience, what it says, right? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 talks about the Word of God being what gets to the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now I have a picture just to, that Hannah's going to throw up here of kind of something that this is basically how, whether you know it or not, almost every counselor you see or even most theologians, most kind of work by this kind of idea of how the conscience works. This is kind of Freud's presupposition. You like this kind of guy, this is what Freud proposed to us. Freud did not like the conscience. In fact, Freud's idea was, let's get rid of guilt. And so he, he termed this phrase called false guilt, right? Just to, so you understand, guilt is not bad, all right? Now, wrong guilt, unjust guilt is wrong, right? But a lot of times in our society, we want to get rid of guilt. We want to say bye to guilt, get it out. Well, actually, the siren of the soul actually be, may be bringing up guilt to us for a good reason. And don't don't, um, don't ignore it. Don't smash the dash, acting like, well, let's let this siren go off. No, obey it. So this is kind of what Freud proposed. He said that we're made up of three parts. Is the id. And the id is the impulsive, I want it now, right? That's the pleasure center. He says this is, this is how man operates. This is this part of man that just wants what he wants. And, and Freud's kind of idea it was, if the id is not taken care of in the early stages of life, then, then it can go awry and really take over the ego, right? That's where in a lot of kind of psychotherapy, the problem in life is what others have done to you, right? And what they've done to you has affected the id, right? By the way, what others have done to you in your life can have an effect, but it is not a determination, right? Because others did not mess up your conscience. We came into this world with a broken conscience already because of the fall of Adam and Eve. Now, he also had something called the superego. You see over here the superego? You can't have it. It's not right. So in Freud's kind of idea of how man works, he would say, 
Well, you have this superego who's the prude. The superego just wants to not let the id do whatever he wants to do, right? He coined, he basically compared the superego to the conscience. He would say, the superego is like the conscience, always condemning, always calling a siren to the id, always telling the id, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't be impulsive, you can't have what you want, you can't, you can't have all the things that you just desire and feel. So in Freud's kind of presupposition, who denied God, was a pagan, did not like the God of the scriptures, he said there's this guy called the ego, and he's kind of the mediator between the superego and the id and you kind of see the ego up here. I need to do a bit of planning to get it, right? So you kind of, this is his presupposition of how man worked. There's the id, I want it now. And the superego telling him, you can't have it right now. He's the prude, he's the conscience, sounding the siren. And then you have the ego sitting over here saying, well, let me, let me see if I can negotiate between these two. If you watch the old commercials, do you ever, I'm sorry, old cartoons, do you remember the old Bugs Bunny cartoons where there come a decision time and all of a sudden it's like, bunny with like a devil horn would kind of be up on one shoulder then this one with like the angel on the other side y'all know what i'm talking about these kind of old cartoons that's what that is just so you know that's freudian psycho psychology right now i would say this is not biblical please reject this it's an entirety but just so you know basically all systems of counseling that do not take the word of god as sufficient use some form of this system whether they understand it or not even so much of this, you find in a lot of preaching today, this idea of all guilt is bad guilt. And that's this idea that the superego is coming in on our conscience and we need to silence the superego. And then we need to let the ego do the mediating. And a biblical view says this. Biblical view says God has given us a conscience. A conscience. It was there at creation. All men have it. That conscience is subject to the law of God written on man's heart and gets further understood as he knows the written word of God and that conscience is to be informed by God. Completely different from this scenario, right? Now we can take this picture down. We don't have to assume him as much. By the way, from that picture, you have the idea of the unconscious. The unconscious, which I reject it, the unconscious idea that you hear so much is really from this idea of the id, right? That the id is sitting there, and there's all these things that, that, that have been repressed by the superego, and, and the only way to get it out is through therapy, that you go back in the past and recover the unconscious so that the ego can bring it up right and you can rightly deal with it. And I would say that, that that's not true. The problems that we have in life that, that we have directly have would be a result of what's really conscious, and that's what we have to deal with from God's perspective. Now, let me just take you on a little trip. By the way, it's a long introduction. Amen? Go back to Genesis 2. I want to paint a picture so you, we can understand the conscience. Because honestly, I think the conscience is not something we really understand. The siren of the soul. You know what's really awesome right now uh, in our day and age that I've noticed? We love accountability, right? And I don't know if we love it. <laughs> but we believe in it, right? We believe in it. Like, I, I believe that's one of the things I've seen in my kind of two decades two plus decades of ministry is in the beginning years, I don't feel like I heard a lot about accountability, God's people accountability, but I feel like I hear it a lot now. But here's the one thing you got to understand about accountability. Accountability won't work if the conscience is not working right. You have a lot of people that are in accountable relationships and they keep falling and failing and falling and failing because in the beginning they're not listening to the siren of the soul. It's, it's kind of like this, you're in the car. Someone doesn't buckle their seatbelt, and the siren's going off, but they continue to ignore it. Now, now let's say, that, let's say that, that I'm a guy who's driving my car, and I say to my wife, hey, will you help me be accountable to put my seatbelt on? And she says, sure, right? But she's not there with me most of the time when I'm driving my car, right? <laughs> so I get in my car and, you know, just start driving, bing, 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 never stopping, right? I get home that day. How was your day? <sighs> that siren and that that siren in my car went off the whole time I was driving. And why didn't you call me and help me with that? Well, my conscience was already doing something. Here's one of the things I've discovered: there's so many Christians that are wanting accountability, but they're forgetting that there's this conscience that it starts there. 
Now, that doesn't mean you don't do accountability. But I think God's people have put so much faith and accountability, and it's that plus the idea of a co- listening to the conscience that is especially biblically informed. So it kind of looks like this, that, that you listen to the conscience, and then you invite the accountability into the car, and then, you, then I would say, Cindy, would you come and sit in the car with me as I drive today? And is I'm not my conscience is not listening to the bell. Would you give me a quick little reminder? It's the conscience. And by the way, it was there in the very beginning. In the Freudian system, conscience gets developed and messed up by your environment. But in the very beginning, it was already there. It was already subject to God. The conscience is subject to God. It's not perfect, but it's subject to God, His truth, and His word. Look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. You probably know a lot of the background. But I want to show you that Adam and Eve operated with a good, clean conscience before the fall. You know all the creation narrative in the story. I'm sure you do. But look in verse 25. At the very end of it, after God had said, um, after we have man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, they shall be one flesh. In verse 25 it says, and the man and the wife were both naked and they were what? No guilt. No shame. The conscience is clean. Walking with God in the garden. No fallen. No fallenness. But now we know what happens in chapter 3, right? In chapter 3, they fall. In chapter 3, they disobey God. They go against what God has said. Now look in verse 7. It says this, after they took of the tree, it says this, The eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Why did they do that? Because something was wrong in their conscience, right? Something happened right here, right? They knew something was right. They knew they had to hide out. There was a siren going off, so they had to cover themselves. Verse 8. When they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. And God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid. Left out some details, didn't he? But what was this? This is the first idea that we have of Man's conscience is now pricked. Man's, man now is shame and guilt, and he hides. What I love in our text today, Paul's saying, I got nothing to hide from you. Everything I've told you in my ministry, the 18 months I've been with you, the extra visit that I made, what I've, the three letters I've written to you already, and now, now this one, I got nothing to hide. My conscience is clear with you. Their conscience wasn't clear. By the way, when a conscience isn't clear, in Freud's system, it was blame shift all your conscience onto other people. Blame shifted onto your parents or your upbringing or whatever's happened to you. But notice in the text, as soon as they're confronted with their conscience, with their sin, with their guilt, with their shame, look in verse 11. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? By the way, when God asks the question, it doesn't mean he doesn't know the answer. And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. What do you have? Blame shifting our evil, weak, our, our now evil conscience onto someone else. He comes to the woman, and Yahweh said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, Satan made me do it. What do we see? Even the very beginning, shame and guilt, and it comes already, they have a conscience towards God, hiding from God, and blame shifting it. That's what's so bad about the Freudian system is it blame shifts. It tries to blame all of our problems on somebody or someone else. Now, listen, there's things that many of us have horrendously been through in our growth and in in growing up. Um, I've known way too much abuse, way too many bad things that I've heard from people. Um, praise God that I, I grew up in a family that I didn't experience that kind of heartache, but I have lots of friends and family and close ones that have. And, and I can tell you this. That has an effect on you, but not a determination. And really what's more important is not what they have done to you, but how you are thinking about what has been done to you today. Are you able to offer forgiveness towards them in your heart as God has forgiven you? Are you do we understand that this is how you actually go forward? Do we obey our conscience when our conscience says, Hey, Nick. You've been forgiven already of so much, you can forgive what those people have done to you in the past. That's the siren of the soul. Or is it this idea of, 
the sirens going off, and I just go, well, you know what? I want to stew over what they've done to me in the past. I want to, there's a, I, I want to just think more about what they've done and how evil they were and how good I am. And this, we ignore the conscience in the moment. So the conscience was there in the very beginning. Now go to Romans 1. The conscience is something that all mankind have. By the way, the book of Romans, guess what city it was written from? Corinth, right? So just as you get to know the book of, as we preached 1 Corinthians a couple years ago, we're doing 2 Corinthians now. Can you just kind of, you know, once you get to know these books, just kind of think all that must be in Paul's heart as he's writing the book of Romans from Corinth. But notice this. This conscience all men have. All men have, whether you're in Christ or outside of Christ. Look in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress it. You start to see the idea of conscience already going on here. By the way, if the word conscience isn't used, it doesn't mean it can't be described in certain sections, right? So now look in verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident, what does it say? Within them, right? Within them. For God has made it evident to them. So it's saying that, that, that the wrath of God has been revealed. It is evident in them. Their conscience knows it. Verse 20. For the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, both his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood throughout which has been made, so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse for the atheist or the agnostic. There's no excuse for anybody. God has revealed himself enough that even the conscience of all men know that there is a God and that they are subject to them. Now, they may try to just keep driving the car and leave it, unbuttoned, leave it unbuckled enough that they ignore this natural revelation that happens, but the conscience was there at some point sounding the alarm. It's there. It's there in everybody. But look in verse 21. But even though they knew God, that doesn't mean they know him in a saving way, but they have a conscience-directed understanding of him. Verse 21. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. You ignore the siren long enough, you get used to the siren, and you just go live life the way you want to live it. It says this. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Just so you understand. We know this is Pride Month. And um, here's one of the things. How can a person give themselves over to a homosexual lifestyle because you ignore the conscience long enough. You will so ignore it that you will now give into it. And the ultimate sign that a society and culture has given into an ignoring of their conscience, they even start to ignore it at the basis level of creation. Men with men and women with women, which is not God's will. Verse 26. For this reason, I'm sorry, verse... Um, yeah, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, for the females exchanged the natural function for which is unnatural. In the same way, also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males, committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Yes, there is judgment to pay when people live uh, not according to God's standards. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them over to an unfit mind. Some We would call this the seared conscience. They, God gave them over. God, the, the, the unbeliever who lives in his rebellion and ignores his conscience, and the siren is going off in the car, but they just keep driving. They do those things which are not proper, having been filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. It's, it's just not... One area, it goes all over. Malice, gossips, slanders, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though, look at verse 32, just look at it. And although they know 
the righteous requirement of God. Oh, some people go, well, bless the unbeliever's heart. They don't know it's wrong. And I would go, no, actually, the, the law of God written in their heart actually told them this is wrong. I want to come back to verse 32, but I want to point something to you in Romans 2, 14. Look at Romans 2, 14. We're going to come back to verse 31. It says this. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these, not having the law, are law unto themselves, and that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. I would like to submit to you in verse 14 through 16 this idea that the law of God is already written on man's heart in such a way that even the unbelieving man in his conscience knows that all of life is really split up into two big commandments. When they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, what did he say? Love God and love others. What is the summation of the Ten Commandments? The first three are about loving God. The, verse, the commandment number four about loving God and actually loving others. And, the, and five through ten is about loving others. It's loving God and loving others. The law of God written on man's heart is at a basis level, is loving God and loving others. When you look in verse 28 through 31 and you see all these ways it's describing the man who is rejecting God and, and rejecting God's law. He's, these are the different ways of not loving God and not loving others. These are the manifestations of it. And it says, look in verse 32, and although they know the righteous requirements of God, they know it, the law of God written on their heart already. I mean, you have Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And then you have in chapter 4, their two sons, and one son kills the other. We don't see already any talk about murder, right? But we already understand the law of God written on man's heart. Murder was wrong. You don't have to go to a pagan a culture. You don't have to go to a primitive tribe and tell them that murder is a bad thing. They already know murder is a bad thing. The law of God written on their heart because murdering someone is not a loving thing to do. So verse 32, although they know the righteous requirement of God. Those who practice such things are worthy of death. They know it. They've not listened to the conscience anymore. They've just done what they want to do. Now I want you to look at the very end of verse 32. That they not only do the same thing, but also give, what does it say? Hearty approval to those who practice them. So all men have a conscience. We, we see it in the garden. We can see all men, even unbelievers, are functioning within a conscience. They're ignoring the siren of the soul, living, and, and here's what they have to do. If a person is wanting to ignore their conscience, and they really want to do a good job of ignoring that siren, they have to find someone else who can get in the car with them that will ignore the siren too. And if they can get someone else in the car with them, and go, hey, do you hear the siren? And that person's conscience is just as seared. No, I don't hear anything. Then they can get someone in the back seat. And everybody in the car says, we don't hear any siren. When any normal human being who gets in it would go, this is crazy. But here's what, here's what happens. When a man is not listening to the siren of the soul, even the unbelieving man, even the man outside of God, who knows the law of God written in his heart, what he tries to do, he tries, if he can get enough people to agree with him in his rebellion, then he justifies his rebellion. Why do you have a pride month? Well, this is not a message about pride month. Why do you have a pride month? Because you can't justify it unless you can get people to get in the car with you and ignore the siren of the soul. That's why you have it. It's the conscience. Now, unless you think this whole message is just about pride month, it's not about the conscience. Before my time runs away with me too much, are y'all okay? You're all still with me? All right, the conscience, it's the siren of the soul. It's a, it, it is a guard, but it's not perfect. Conscience is not perfect. How do I know it's not perfect? Didn't you just read about it? You may know what God, but you ignore it, right? You can sear it. You can ignore the conscience, the siren of the soul. You can also have a, a conscience that's actually not biblically informed. We'll look at that here in a little bit. Now, um, I don't know if I have a lot of time to go into this, so I'll just kind of give you the overview. But when it comes to our conscience, we want to keep strengthening our conscience. How do we strengthen our conscience? Well, 
there's really four areas that I would say four standards of where our conscience gets greater informed, right? One would be, I would just call it the law of God on the heart, right? The law of God on the heart, which access to everybody. It's the, at the basis level, it's love God and love others. At its basis level, the law of God. But that's one standard. But that standard grows when you have the second standard, which the second standard is the law of God written, right? When I say the law of God written, I'm talking things like Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. I'm talking like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 through 17, that the word of God is written for, to help us to know what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. So the standards of strengthening a conscience is, and, and naturally it's the law of God written on man's heart, but it gets further developed and strengthened and becomes what you have in Paul's text here today, verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 1, that when it is informed through, uh, through the word of God, it's informed by the law of God, it, the conscience strengthens and becomes stronger. It almost as if this, if we're taking my car illustration, it takes the decibel level of your car, that ring, and makes it to, a, in, to this kind of like blaring siren, right, that you can't ignore or your ears will start bleeding, right? I, I had a professor one time who said that his son had played the stereo in his car so loud that he developed a hearing condition, and they knew he had a hearing condition because the, the, his son's ears started to bleed, right? Just like busting his drum. Now, terrible thought, but hang with me. The greater our conscience is informed by the law and word of God, right? the louder that siren will seem to us when we get in the car, where it will become almost impossible to ignore. So, that's one, one standard is the law of God in our heart. The other is the law of God written, the written word of God. Another third standard of the, is, is the law of God in ordained authority. Oh, did you know that the scriptures speak of our conscience uh, needing to obey the laws of authority that God has? For instance... Um, Man, I just don't have enough time to cover all this, but let me just give you an example. Go to Romans 13, right? Romans 13. By the way, I know, long introduction. I warned you, but uh, hopefully this is helpful. If there's a chapter of the Bible that, that I reject when I'm in the car, it's Romans 13. It's okay then. <laughs> That's not true, but only if you go more than five miles over the speed limit. That's okay. Chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be subject to governing authorities. Let me just build this out for you. Just hang with me. Are you okay? I know we're reading a lot of scripture. Is that okay to do in church? Okay. For there is no authority except from God. That which exists has been appointed by God. So God appoints governmental authority. Therefore, whoever resists the authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause to fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good, and will you have praise with the same? Verse 4, we're about to get to it. For it is a minister of God to you for good. This is government, right? But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bring the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Look in verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of this wrath, but also because of what? Conscience. It's like, for instance, if we cheat on our taxes, right? Our conscience will prick us, the siren of the soul, and that's a good thing according to God's word. So there are other things. Now, it's, it's the law of God written on man's heart, the law of God written that greater helps us strengthen that siren of the soul. But also there are ordained authority that helps us to, um, for the siren of the soul. Although I don't have, man, I never have enough time. Let me give you some other areas. And, and you may buck this, but it's true. There are different things, different authority that we're to obey. And when we don't obey it, the siren of the soul will go off. One is government. You know what another one is? Not obeying your husband. They'd be like, oh, you're just saying this so Cindy will, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, she's not even here. She's back there. Right. Go, go to 
First Peter 3, 1 through 6. I want to show you this. Man, I, I told you it would be a long introduction. I want you to understand the conscience part. Look at this. In the same way, you wives, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. In the same way, you wives, by the way, just so I can tell you this, the law of God for ordained authority, ordained authority does have limited authority. It cannot go above God. If limited God-ordained authority goes above God, you obey God, not man. So if government asks you and says, don't worship Jesus, then you disobey governmental authority. If a husband says you don't worship Jesus, you, you worship Jesus, right? If he asks you to sin, you don't sin. If he asks you to disobey God, you, you do not disobey God. In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, so we're not talking about a good dude, right, who's loving Jesus, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives as they observe your pure conduct with fear. Your adornment not best be the merely external braiding of the hair, wearing of gold jewelry, putting of the garment. He's saying, let them see not just the exterior, but verse 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet, quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Do you start to see some conscience here on the inside that like she starts to go, I'm obeying the authority of my husband in my home because I trust God, I trust his order, right? It's the, and, and let me just tell you, there are some wives that some, of their, some problems in their life are a result that they cannot trust God's order for the home. And if their husband has asked something, that they disobey it and they would wonder, why am I so unhappy with certain things in life? It could be the siren of the soul going off. I don't think I'm some male chauvinist telling you all that. I'm just, I'm trying to like point you into the word of God. This happens a lot. So it's this, look in verse five. For in the same way in former times, the holy women who also hoped in God used to adorn themselves being subject to their own husbands. Verse six, just as though Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become children if you do good. Do not fear intimidation. By the way, it's not like God lets husbands off the hook because you've got verse 7. He's to live with his wife in an understanding way, right? But we see that the law of God in ordained authority from government to husbands, parents. Parents is another one. A, 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 child's, conscience, a, a child's conscience should be pricked if they're not obeying their parents' authority, right? Another one is employers. Look in 1 Peter, um, kind of an employer situation. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Now this is speaking of really indentured servitude, really for the most part here. But it says this, but it makes a great transition to kind of an employer-employee kind of relationship application. But look in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are crooked. Verse 19. For this finds favor, if for the sake of what? Sake of what? Conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously. So it says even here that if you're serving in a kind of, this is more of an employer situation, I think, if you're doing it out of a pure conscience, like this is rewarding, even if they're not a kind employer, right? So you see ordained authority. You can see a conscience even being worked out where that happens. You even can go over to um, Hebrews 13 and verse 17 through 18. You can see this even in church leadership. Hebrews 13, what's very interesting in verse 13, Hebrews 13 and verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders, submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. Then he says, pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves well in all things. So he says, the writer says, we want to conduct ourselves well because as leaders, we're asking people to um, submit to us. We want to have a good conscience, a good conscience. So we see this even in ordained authority. And by the way, as we kind of close out, so here's four standards. The law of God written on your heart. We already covered that. The law of God written, such as the Ten Commandments, the moral commands, the God's written word that's completed to us now. We see, God, we see the ordaining of God-ordained authority that is limited, such as government, husbands, parents, employers, church leaders. And number four is this. 
And this is a really kind of weird one. But one would be this, our own personal standards. Our own personal standards. Um, do this. And for time's sake, I'll just pick one. I'll give you some scriptures to write down. We'll just pick one of them. Go to 1 Corinthians 10. But if you're taking notes, you can write down and look up later 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 13. Or you could look up Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through 23. But we're going to look specifically at 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33. So when it comes to the conscience, it's not perfect. It's a siren. But, you know, some people can have a weak conscience, right? Some people can have a conscience not fully informed. Some people can have a conscience that they're still working through things. So in our text, what you had in the early church is there were people coming from a Jewish background, from a pagan background, and someone who came from a pagan background, they may have ate meat that was offered to an idol because you could buy that cheaper in the marketplace if it was offered to an idol, kind of secondhand meat, right? Uh, Which I would not think that would be a good thing to do today, right? Don't eat secondhand meat. Not a good thing, I think. But they evidently were okay with it. And so, but some of these pagans, their conscience was bothered by eating meat that used to be offered to a pagan idol. Although, really, honestly, that idol is dead and nothing. And it was actually, if their conscience was okay, they actually could have ate that meat if, if it wasn't an act of worship to them. But what happened is you started to have all sorts of different backgrounds and people coming together. And the goal was always to love God and love others. And so what would happen is you get these two Christians together. One may come from a pagan background, and, and, or both may come from a pagan background, and one pagan already has a strong conscience and can go, that meat doesn't mean anything. That was a dead idol. I can eat it. What matter? What does it matter? But then you have someone else who still looks at that meat and goes, I remember worshiping that false god. And, and when I eat that meat, I just can't take it, right? And the stronger Christian is to not tempt the weaker Christian. And the stronger Christian <coughs> is to be sensitive to the conscience of the weaker Christian. Now, it's the weaker Christian. The, the, so the conscience is not perfect for that weaker Christian, but you shouldn't go against your conscience. The weaker Christian should not ignore the siren, even though the siren needs to be more biblically informed it shouldn't ignore it. I'll show this to you in the text. Y'all with me? Y'all still with me? Okay. I know this is more of a teaching one. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let each one seek his own good. Let no one seek his own good. Ooh, glad I cleared that up. But that of the other person. Eat anything that is sold in the marketplace without asking question for conscience sake, right? Like, (laughs) you don't have to nitpick everything. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness. Like, you can eat everything. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you go to eat, eat anything that is set before you without asking question for conscience sakes. But if anyone says to you, "This this means that an unbeliever invites you to their house, they're serving you pagan meat, you and another believer go, you don't ask anything. you just kind of like, I'm just going to eat a meal and be thankful that I'm here to, to witness to you. But you have another Christian with a weaker conscience, and they're asking questions. They're asking questions to that unbeliever going, hey, where'd this meat come from? If anyone says to you, this meat is consecrated to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. So it says the, um, the pagan invited you, had meat, secondhand market, bought from an idol. You're okay with it. You have a weaker Christian who asked. His conscience is pricked. Don't you eat. Don't you make him. Don't you criticize him. The siren of the soul is going off. Let that happen. Now, he needs to be more biblically informed in the future, but in that moment, do not silence the siren. Do not ignore it. He says, verse 29, I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's, for why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? See, we, we work with each other's conscience. We want to make sure that we don't offend other people's consciences. So all throughout the scripture, you have different kinds of consciences, right? You, you'll see that. And here we see that a conscience is not perfect. It can be weak, but it should not be ignored. But it's not perfect. But the better our conscience is informed by the word of God and the law of God, the better that, con- that siren of the soul will set off and make it almost impossible to function, uh, almost impossible to ignore it. 
I'll give you an example. In our house this morning, right about an hour before service, all of our smoke and fire alarms went off in my house. Now, there was no smoke or fire. I think there's a short in our, in our they're all attached to each other. Uh, about two weeks ago, at three in the morning, they went off, right? And we kind of bust all out the door and check it out. It's nothing. So it seems like maybe there's a little problem. Well, Cindy calls me about an hour before church, and, you know, they're on their way out the door, and the sirens just, boom, start going off. There's a short somewhere. But, but as she calls me, I can hear these things going off in the background, right? And they're loud. Like, I mean, piercing loud. It's not the ring in your car from not having your seatbelt on. I'm talking, it is meant to disturb your soul. And I can remember, like, this morning hearing it over the phone, and she was trying to turn it off, but they were so loud, it was like, she was discombobulated in her head because it was so piercing. Do you understand what I'm saying? The more biblically informed we are, the louder that siren gets. And we can do nothing but, we can do nothing but pay attention to it. Now, you have to be careful because in the scriptures, you can do all sorts of things. And time is running short on us. But if you're taking notes, I'll, I'll tell you this. There are consciences in the scriptures, and you can put down 1 Timothy Four, one through five, that says you can have a seared, evil, defiled conscience. You can ignore it so much. You can even go so far as that some people have ignored the siren of, of their soul so much. It's kind of like in your car. They don't want the seatbelt siren to go off anymore. So what do they do? They find some way to turn it off, right? There's the untrained conscience, right? This, this would be a conscience that is just working in ignorance. For instance, if you were to write down 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, Paul says that he used to persecute the church, but he did it in ignorance. Paul thought he was actually obeying his conscience when he persecuted the church, but it was an uninformed conscience. So you can have an uninformed conscience. You can also have a weak, overactive conscience. We just read about that in 1 Corinthians 10. But here's what I want to focus on. A good, clear, biblical conscience. Do this. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. And now we're about to get into the text of our message. You're like, Nick, you got seven minutes. <laughs> Not going to happen. Yes, it is. Now, look at 1 Timothy. I want to point to you a good conscience, right? What that looks like. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Look what he says. But the goal of our command is love from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and an unhypocritical faith. All right, so there is a such thing as a good conscience. And Paul says, I got a good conscience here, Timothy. Look, in, look further in chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. He says this, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made. This is the same chapter, chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Timothy. Concerning you, that by them you might fight a good fight. Look what he says to Timothy. Timothy, keep faith. And a good what? And a good what? And a good conscience, which some have rejected. They've ignored the siren. And Liz, what happens? When you ignore the siren of the conscience, what happens in verse 19? Shipwreck your faith. Shipwreck. And he says in verse 20, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may not talk to blasphemy. He's saying, we have to actually discipline these two guys. Why? Because ultimately, they ignored the siren of the soul, their conscience, and they shipwrecked their faith. How do people, you always wonder, have you ever wondered this? Have any of you ever had a, a pastor or someone you admired or a disciple that you admired, and you just thought, like, they walk with Jesus, and then 10 years later, they're living like hell? You ever seen that before, and you wonder what happened? I'll tell you what happened. They stopped listening to the siren of the soul, the conscience. You do that long enough, you'll start to sear. And that good conscience that you have because of Jesus becomes an evil conscience. And before you know it, shipwreck their faith. A good conscience. Look in chapter 3, verse 8 through 9. This is the qualifications for a deacon. And look what it says about a deacon. Likewise, this is cha chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding the mystery of the faith with a what? Clear conscience. Go to 2 Timothy, the next book, 2 Timothy chapter 
1, verse 3, 2 Timothy, Paul says this. I am grateful to God. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I am grateful to God whom I serve with a, what kind of conscience? Clear conscience. Now, mm, I'll go ahead and do this while I'm here. Why not? Go over to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and then we'll get back. Now we'll be in first, we'll be in the, with four minutes left, the, our text. First Peter chapter three verse twenty one. Talking about baptism here. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal from the flesh, but an appeal of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, I would say this that how does a person how does a person really know? Why is baptism such a big thing? Because it actually shows that you have a good conscience towards God, that you actually know God has cleansed you of your sin. You actually know that you no longer have shame or guilt because he has actually taken that shame or guilt. And if you have shame or guilt as a Christian, the siren goes off, you repent, you confess, and you receive forgiveness. Now, do this. Go back over to 1 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Man, I got too many numbers in my head, y'all. Now, back in the text. Now that you understand the conscience, the siren of the soul, now come back to this, and I want you to understand, hopefully you'll see the full force of it. Verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, that's what they were accusing him of, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. As you read this whole book, you discover they were casting false accusations into Paul for all sorts of reasons that were untrue. Also, we'll talk about one of them next week. All sorts of things. And Paul says, nope, my conscience, that won't even land. I've looked at my, con- my conscience is clear before the Lord. Sincerity and in holiness before you. That's how we have operated. Look in verse 13. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you'll understand at the end. Paul had already written three letters to them. And it's kind of like this. You know how some people read the Bible? They read the Bible and their first question, the first thing they'll ask themselves is, what does this mean to me? Right? That's kind of what they were doing. They were reading what Paul had written to them, the three letters they already had, and going, well, I think this is what Paul really meant here. And, and, you know, just nitpicking the thing. And Paul goes, what I wrote to you is what I wrote to you. doesn't need extra interpretation. What needs to happen is, what did I mean? And what I meant is according to a clean conscience, right? I wrote to you with a clear and clean conscience. Look what the Word says and ask what I meant, not what you feel like it meant. Look at verse 14. Just as you also partially did understand us. Now, when he writes this letter... Titus had already gone and made a visit to them and had come back and reported to Paul that they had repented. Many in the church did. They were changing their mind about his ministry. They were changing their mind about their rebellion. So he says, just as you partially did understand us. He said, some of you really are getting this. Some of you are now walking in a clear conscience. You understand the clear conscience I had in everything I've written and done in ministry to you that the false apostles are accusing. He says in verse 14, that we are your reason for boasting as you are ours also. He says, your conscience is starting to actually get clear. And I'm, you're boasting about now you understand how clear my conscience is towards you in my ministry, but now I'm starting to see that you're changing and your conscience is getting clear. And now I love the end of it. He says this. In the day of our Lord Jesus. In the day of the Lord Jesus. So he says, I'm boasting about my conscience. You're boasting about it. I'm boasting about you. You're my boast. I love what God is doing. And all the way until the day that the Lord comes back, right? Jesus is the ultimate standard. We're looking towards his return. And in that, our consciences are to continually to be refined and biblical and clean and clear. And we're to listen to the siren of the soul until the Lord comes back. And I'm confident you will, Corinthian church. And God will reveal everything on his day. So you don't have to guess about 
am I, is Paul ethical or not? I've got a clear conscience towards you. If there's anything unclear, God will reveal it at that day. So we don't have to guess people's motivations. We just have to trust what God has said. And so now we see that Paul has put forward the clear conscience that he has. And it's all a result of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll, we'll end with this little word here. I know that's the last scripture, but I've got 33 seconds left. Oh, man. My conscience is clear, though. <laughs> look, at, look at Hebrews 9. And I just want to show you this one scripture, and, and I'll, I'll promise I'll be done. Hebrews 9, verse 14. Talking about how Jesus is a better sacrifice than the ceremonial system of Israel. And it says this. The ceremonial sacrificial system of blood and goats. It says in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, who, who the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God... Jesus offers himself as the spotless lamb, replaces all their sacrificial system for Israel, cleanse your what? Conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Ultimately, if you want to clean conscience, you need to get saved. You need Jesus. Would you stand with us and let's pray over this. Our worship team comes. Thank you. Man, y'all have done so great. A a detailed and probably data-driven message. I hope that the siren of the soul becomes aware. Would you pray with me over this? We are thankful for this conscience that you've given us. Today, would you bring us to repentance if we've ignored it? Maybe the alarm's going off and we've just let it go. God, help us. We need your help. Thank you for this this critical part of the internal part of man. Let us heed its warning. And ultimately, I'm so thankful most of my brothers and sisters here, we know the Lord. This is what's normal for us. Normal is listening to the conscience that's been redeemed, to the, what you've done through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. We are new creations with the Spirit living in us, and we serve a living God, not dead works, to the praise of his name. And God's people said, amen.